Hey, middle schoolers, for those of you who are in here, we're glad you're here. Seriously. So you feel right at home, okay, middle schoolers? So, so glad. Hey, this is just a three-week thing, um, and uh, it's tough because you can't talk about this topic in three weeks. My gosh, you know? I mean, it's ridiculous. And so, uh, and I, I'm, I'm just going to let you know I'm not going to be able to hit all the stuff, and there's going to be a lot of whatabouts, 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 and that's okay because we want to be a part of, we want to be in dialogue and discussion about all these sort of things. But we're talking about sex today, and I thought about singing a little salt and pepper and boys to men. Um, <laughs> But I, but, I thought, but I thought probably that would be a little bit too amazing, so I decided not, not to do it. Um, but uh, again, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. This, this isn't at the center of our doctrine, okay? You know, this is um, what I hope that you're going to see is, this is, this, is a, this is downstream from so many other things that Jesus wants to do with us. But it's an important topic, and so therefore we're taking three weeks to talk about it, keeping our middle schoolers in. Um, I just want to start off by saying um, God made everything, and at the beginning, what we see in Genesis, God made everything, and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. God isn't surprised by our bodies and by any of our sexual desires. Um, he created those things, which is kind of incredible, if you think about it, that he didn't have to create it the way that he did, but he did. And so some of us were taught that like Christians are kind of, you know, look at the human body, look at sexual, uh, you know, sexual desire and that we're just, you know, we're just like put off by the whole thing. And if you were taught that, I'm sorry, you were lied to. Okay. Christianity, Christians don't believe that. Christians um, have a robust, beautiful, actually, out, actually out of all the different other religions and worldviews, Christianity has the most robust uh, view of the human body and of sexual desire. Other religions say, oh, it's just an illusion. Other religions say, oh, you know, just like, you know, don't, you know, don't engage in that because it's, uh, because, you know, it's bad and dirty. Um, and then there's other people that say, hey, you know what? Sex is no big deal. It's like nothing. It's kind of like just playing mini golf. You know, it's like the same. So just do whatever you want to do. But Christianity steps onto the scene and has this beautiful, robust vision of of, hey, no, this is a good thing. God created it. And so uh, you just need to know that going in, okay? Um, I want to lay some groundwork today. I am not here to produce shame. I'm not here to produce shame. Um, <laughs> scripture also talks about in, in the very beginning, God says he created male, female, and he created them. And they were, it says that they were naked and without shame. They were naked and without shame. And at this point, there's one rule <laughs> that God has. The one rule is just trust me, let me be God. But be naked and be without shame. So this is a, this is a good God. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think that, our, that God is just, he just loves putting, pasting rules on everything. But at the beginning, what we see is that God is, he's not about a God of rules. I mean, he's, he's creating it and, and there's no shame wrapped around it. Um, so I'm not here to produce shame. But we've got to be honest about the ways, that, the ways that our culture views sex and sexual desire, sexual intimacy. Um, and, uh, and we have to acknowledge that there's all sorts of ways that we can view it that are distorted, that, that are unhealthy. Um, and, so, uh, and so I'm going to lay some groundwork today. Uh, the first time I saw pornography, I was in sixth grade, and I was in, uh, our family rented a house in Lake Tahoe for a family reunion, and I'll, I'll remember, we, we, you know when you rent a house, and you, you go in, and like the first thing you do is like try to open up all the cupboards and like see what's in there? Does anybody else do that? You're just like, what do these people have in here? You know, so you're looking everywhere, and like, oh, what's in this drawer? And I remember my brother and I, uh, in the bathroom, we opened up this, this cupboard thing, and on the top thing, there was a penthouse magazine up there. 
And so, um, and my parents are in another part of the house. And so my brother and I, you know, like found a place all by ourselves. And we're like, what is this? And I remember, I remember being, I remember feeling the power of what I was looking at. Like that's one thing I remember taking away. I remember opening up and I I remember feeling like this is powerful stuff. Like this is, like I shouldn't be looking at this, but I'm also so drawn to it. It's just powerful. I remember I was just struck by, like, this is a big deal. Um, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm looking at here. As I got older, um, I had friends in high school that had cassette tapes, because at the time, that's what we had. We had VHS cassette tapes. And so, and so I had some friends who had some videos on, on VHS cassette tapes. And so um, I, they would be like, you know, sleepovers at, at their houses, and uh, they would always like use those cassette tapes for leverage, and you know, and then like we were like, hey, can we look? And so then uh, I, uh, we would watch some of those videos. And then when I got into college, I was living at the Onyx House, which is this co-op house that's still here down on 18th and Onyx. And, uh, and it was at the time when we, people were just starting to get um, dial-up internet. So this was a long time ago. And this was the kind of internet where it sounds like a dying bird when you try to boot it up. You know, I remember that kind of internet. And, and I remember at the Onyx House with like 60 college students, I was the first person that had internet on a computer in their room in, in the whole entire house. And so we, I was just a, kind of like the very beginning of, you know, in just a few years' time, um, the whole house was wireless, you know, and everybody's got internet anywhere they want. And so it, cha- it, it changed really, really rapidly um, in the time that I was there. Um, so, you know, fast forward to today, you know, back kind of when I grew up and, you know, when, if you're kind of older, I mean, you, you can relate to this. Pornography was kind of hard to get. You had to kind of work hard to get it. And nowadays you have to work hard to not get it. You have to, before you had to like be strategic and today you have to be strategic to, to stay away from it because it's literally everywhere, everywhere. Um, came across an article in the New York Times and it's called What Teenagers Are Learning from Online Porn. And uh, it was in the New York Times not too long ago. And, um, it's, and this is a quote from the, uh, from the article. It said, but for, uh, it, and it's, around, it's about this, this uh, a lot of colleges and high schools are starting porn literacy courses uh, to help students because they're, they're acknowledging that, that they're, they're, hey, they're, they must, they're already looking at a lot of porn, so let's help them be savvier consumers of porn. And this is a quote. But for around two hours, around two hours each week, or for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships, and body images are, per, are portrayed, or in the case of consent, not portrayed, in porn. Um, our culture has come a long way in this area. And so it's safe to say that the, the sexual revolution that happened in the 1960s, and, some, and a lot of you were alive for the 60s. You remember, it was, you know, it was the summer, remember the, the summer of 69, right? It was like, it was just the, hey, you know, um, we don't need like these big overarching meta-narratives about how the world works. Like we're going to be our own people. And truly the sexual revolution um, was a complete success in transforming our culture and transforming our world. Um, we're 50 years deep from the summer of 69. We're 50 years in, and it's safe to say that the, several, that the sexual revolution was a, uh, as far as its effectiveness in transforming the culture, it was a wild success. 
Um, and it did a couple things. Um, and guys, this is really broad, and you know, kind of. I just, I just hope it's, it's. Uh, I just hope to just convey what I'm trying to say here. But it made sex two things. It made it more than it ever was before, and it made it less than it ever was before. So the sexual revolution made sex more than it ever was before because it turned sexual desire into the most important thing about you. This is the most important thing about me. This is at the center of who I am. This is the center of my identity. And so it made it more than it ever was before because it kind of put this thing out into the world that we still believe today in a lot of places in our world that, you know, whatever sort of sexual desires you feel, you need to discover it. You need to listen to it. You need to explore it. You need to feed it. You need to champion it. You need to create an identity around it. You need to express it. You need to push for legislation and rights. And then you need to fight against anybody who's going to threaten it. Like, this is the most important thing about who you are. So it made sex more than it ever was before, but, and then in a lot of ways it made sex way less than it ever was before. So the sexual revolution was so, um, was, was huge in te- teaching us that sex isn't, um, it isn't transcendent, it's not like actually like super important, it's kind of just like something else that you do. Um, it's like an extreme sport. It's like something that, uh, you know, it's just like anything else in life. It's just like rec- recreation. It's something that you barter and trade, and all it is is physical. So let's just calm down, everybody. Let's just not make it such a big deal. It's all just physical, so why are we so uptight about it? About it? It's made it more or less. And so it's caused us to get to a place today where it's just really confusing. It's just really confusing. For all of us, just what are we supposed to think about all this stuff? Especially, especially if you've experienced any sort of trauma or pain or, or in this area, it's even more confusing of like, okay, how am I supposed to enter into this? What am, how am I supposed to think about it? What am I supposed to do? Um, and so we're left with, uh, you know, especially a lot of young people asking, where do I turn? Where do I turn to learn about all this stuff? So the first place you think to turn is parents. Like I'll talk to parents. But unfortunately, a lot of us parents just feel really ill-equipped to have these conversations because we're not even sure how, how, how we think or feel about things. And it's, oh my gosh, it's so confusing. How do we even start this conversation? For some parents, they feel like that because of decisions that they've made in their past that they don't feel qualified to be able to talk to their kids even about it. And so what happens then is the next line of defense in talking to our kids about sex is the schools, is the school districts. And Oregon has a really, really, actually out of every uh, state in, in our country has some of the like, strongest uh, um, you know, guidelines and rules in place for sexual education. Um, but so much sex, sex ed for our kids is happening in the schools, but even the schools are just, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about what the schools are supposed to communicate. And, usually, and the school isn't gonna talk about heart because that's not the school's job. The school's not going to do that. The school's going to talk about, you know, the technical stuff. It's going to talk about, like, hey, make sure there's, there's you know, some pitfalls with, with, with sexually transmitted disease, so be careful about this. And schools are going to tackle some things about consent and things like that that are really big issues in our world today. Um, but, uh, but the schools are so ill-equipped to handle this. So where, is, where, pe- where are young people supposed to look or really all of us, where are we supposed to look? And so unfortunately, where it's landed for people to learn about sex is their friends, pop culture, and porn. That's the place where most of our culture is learning about sex. Which, as I don't need to tell you, is, is a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Um, uh, one quote from a, from a therapist, a family therapist, she says, porn has become the primary sexual educator of today's adolescence. And there's one quote that I found in an article that I read from a high school sophomore that said this. He said, hey, there's nowhere else to learn about sex. 
and porn stars know what they're doing. So there's a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion about what we're supposed to think, and then there's a lot of confusion about where am I supposed to go to to actually be told the truth and to actually wrestle with these big things. And so, you know, this is kind of where we find ourselves. And so where is Jesus and his church in this discussion? Where should Jesus and his church be in this discussion? And unfortunately, unfortunately, most people just think that the church, at worst, is just really judgmental and just unhealthy about this whole topic, or at best, that the church is just drastically out of touch, that we're just, just so stuck in the past when it comes to all these different things. And so for a lot of people to think that, that Jesus or Scripture or the church has anything positive and healthy to say in this arena, just a lot of skepticism about all that. Um, and so, you know, how has the church really has failed to put forth a compelling vision of what sexuality is all about and what it looks like to be under the lordship and rule of Jesus, who we serve, who's our king. Um, so this is what I want to do. I'll, uh, God's the inventor of it. He knows what's best for us. So I just want to give us in these three weeks, and I'm not going to be able to do it all today, just more of a vision, a vision for what sexual desire is supposed to be doing in us as we follow Jesus. What, what does it look like? I want us to give, give us a vision uh, for what that looks like, for, for the glory of who God is and how good he says that this gift is, but also glory for the human body and what Christians are supposed to do with our bodies and our sexual desire. Um, because here's the truth, and this is really kind of the bottom line, so if you're going to, if you need to leave at any point, uh, this is the bottom line, is that sex is... It's powerful, sexual desire is powerful, and it has the power to shape us and form us. It has the power. Remember that moment where I was looking at that penthouse when I, was, I just realized that there's this power, and there's this power, there's this power to shape us and to form us. And so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The Bible talks about sex not because it's bad and it's trying to warn us. It's not because it's bad and it's trying to warn us, but the Bible talks about sex because it's so good and it's trying to form us. Not because it's bad and it's trying to warn us, but because it's so good and it's trying to form us. That's why the Bible talks to us about sex and sexual intimacy. Um, and when we use and engage our sexuality rightly, it really does have the, have the power to transform us in a way that makes us even, even more participants of the kingdom of God. And when we, use it, when we use it in destructive ways, it has the power to kind of form us away from who Jesus wants us to be. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, these talks all fit together, all right? So I feel bad for the people showing up just next week or people who don't listen to this week because we're going to be diving into some other, some different stuff this next week and the week after. And like, then they're going to miss sort of this like under, underneath stuff that I really want people to get. So I encourage you, try to come all three weeks. And if you can't, it's all online so you can listen to them. Uh, but this week, I just want to kind of survey the landscape. I want to talk about some sexual formation approaches that don't work. Next week, I want to talk, I want to put forth a Christian vision of what sexual desire is. And then the last week, I want to do a special focus on certain topics like pornography, masturbation, online dating apps, and a few others. You know, all the easy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, three weeks. Okay. Um, by the way, 
I, I went to great pains to just put together a whole bunch of resources that would be helpful, um, that just kind of like spread the gamut and spread like age range and everything. And all that's online. And, and I can send a link out. Of, we'll do that to make it easy. But it's just on our webpage. It says pastor's recommendations. And I just have a list of a whole bunch of books that I just find so, so helpful in this area as we're wrestling and talking about it. Uh, but I want to take you to the scriptures right now. I want to take you to uh, this conversation that Jesus is having with a group of people in Matthew 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, it's one of the, it's the, the first gospel in your in your new testament and in matthew jesus the context is this jesus has stepped onto the scene um sinners tax collectors prostitutes jesus is reaching out to them and he's creating space for them and he's saying there's room for you in my kingdom because it's not about your performance it's about who i am and what i'm doing and what i've come to do but there was a group, another group of people called the pharisees and they were sort of like the religious navy seals of their day and they, were, and they were just really good rule followers, and they were mistakenly thinking that they would be accepted into God's family, so to speak, because they were good rule followers. And Jesus had to have these conversations over and over again with them where he's trying to get them to see that you can have good behavior, you can be good rule followers, and not have your heart be transformed. And this is where those, those people were is they were good rule followers, but they were doing it for all the wrong reasons. Remember what I said earlier, they were doing it because they found God useful, not because they found him beautiful. And so Jesus was just trying to just get them to the heart. And listen to this conversation, because it's, I mean, it was groundbreaking what Jesus says here. I mean, Jesus is just beyond brilliant, guys. And listen to what he says. He's in this conversation, and he's talking to these Pharisees, and he starts off just guns blazing. He says this, he says, starting in verse 7, he says, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. When Jesus called to the crowd to come near and hear, then he, then he called them near and, and said, come here. And he said, listen, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Now, it's hard for us to, like, grapple, really. I mean, what Jesus is saying is here is just so not how they, how they thought. There are all these rules about, you know, what, for the Jewish people about what you can eat and what you can't eat. And there's, like, holiness code stuff. And it was like, if you do certain stuff, it defiles you. It kind of, it kind of makes you unclean. But Jesus is saying something so radical here. He says, guys, you, you're, not under, you're not understanding he says, the, the, the outward in stuff isn't the thing that defiles you. It's the stuff that comes from within. It comes out of you. It's the stuff found inside. That's the stuff that I want to address. That's the stuff that I want to get at. And verse 12, uh, then the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, do you realize that you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? And Jesus is like, uh, yeah, that was the point, okay? That's exactly what I was trying to do. Um, and Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They're, they're blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they're both fall into a ditch. So Jesus is continuing just to you know, say things about the Pharisees like, man, they're just not getting it. And then Peter says to Jesus, explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. And then Jesus says, don't you understand yet? Like, haven't you been around me enough? Like, haven't, we've, we've talked about this, but let me explain it another way. He says, anything you eat, and Jesus gets like really technical and literal here. He says, anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer, right? And they're like, yeah, okay, we know about that. Uh, Jesus says, but the words that you speak, 
He says they come from the heart, and that's what defiles you. He says, like, the food stuff, I mean, that just kind of comes in, and then it's out, but it's the stuff, it's the words that come out of your heart, and they're like, words come out of our heart. No, 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 words come out of our lungs, right? Like, our words come out of our head. Like, words coming out of our heart, and then Jesus says this. This is just, it's just incredible. He says, but from the heart, from the heart come evil thoughts. Wait, evil thoughts? No, no, no. Thoughts come from your brain, Jesus. Come on. And he says, no, 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 evil, no, evil thoughts, they, they come from your heart. They come from within. Murder? No, no, murder's like from like, like a weapon or, you know, like murder, murder is like, not, it's not from the heart. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand all this stuff. Murder, all sexual immorality. The, the Greek word that he uses there is the word porneia. It's this like kind of like just big term for, for any kind of sexual activity outside of where God intended it to be in a marriage. He says, like, anything like that, then it comes out, of the, comes out of the heart. Theft, lying, slander, these are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will, will never defile you. And he words this word defile, and it's a, it's a tricky word. Uh, unfortunately, the word defile kind of communicates that it, it, like it makes you dirty. You know what I mean? Like when, when a plate is defiled, you know, you eat your food, it's, it's like it's dirty. Um, but it's, it's not saying that, like, hey, if you do those things, it means you're dirty. It's not saying that. It's, it, if we could go to the next slide, it's like the word defile. In another way, you could say it, it's like, it's like it de, deforms. It kind of like decreates. Think, think Gollum in Lord of the Rings, okay? Think, remember, before Gollum was Gollum, he was Smeagol. And Smeagol was a hobbit. And, but then he has the ring of power for so long that it, like, it deforms, it like de-hobbits him. It, it de, I was about to say dehumanizes him, and I was like, no, he's a hobbit. It de-hobbits him. It, 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 it decreates him in a way where it's still him, but it's not him anymore after spending that much time. And so it's not just that he's dirty. It's like he's, it's like he's deformed. And one of the ways that theologians have tried to explain sin to us throughout the centuries has been to use this Latin phrase. I'm getting, hey, middle schoolers, I'm giving you Latin this morning. All right, this is great. Um, this, Latin, this Latin word, um, it's uh, um, incurvatus in se. You put it up there, incurvatus in se. And it literally in Latin, it means curved in on yourself. That what sin essentially is, it's, it's us curving in on ourselves instead of us Opening up our eyes and looking out to God and to others, instead of being others-focused, it, it turns us in on ourselves. And this is what Jesus is trying to get to the heart of. He's like, these things, it's, they, they come from the heart. And if we don't address those things, then, then, then it has the power to sort of decreate us in a way. We become less, we, we, it takes away our humanity step by step, slowly and surely. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want that to happen. And so, you know, he's given us some, uh, some language to understand what sin is all about and what sin does for us. And the Bible talks about it in all sorts of other places. It talks a lot about how we, you, we become like what we worship. So uh, if you sort of bow down to something over and over again, every, after a while, you will become like whatever that thing is. And so it, uh, the things that we give our time to and our lives to, they have so much power to shape us and to form us. Um, and so here's just some, uh, here's some just kind of big picture stuff that I just want us to know. So key for the beginning of this, like just short three-week sermon series. Number one is Jesus is going for the heart first. He's going for the heart first, okay? 
He says, out of the heart. He's talking about upstream issues. This is like a, 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 a visual image that I love to use. It says, this is, Jesus is going for upstream. Because he's not going to like worry about the downstream stuff if, it, and if the upstream isn't changed, right? Because you can change all the stuff downstream, and if the upstream isn't changed, it's just like none of it's going to matter. It's going to be a waste of time. So Jesus is going to handle the upstream stuff, and he wants it then to trickle down into everything, everything else. And so like I said at the beginning, sexual ethics are not the center of our gospel. That's, the sexual ethics are downstream from what we believe who God is and what he's done for us and how he created us and where he wants the world to head. All that stuff is upstream, and Jesus is going for that stuff. He's going for the heart first. He's not going for our behavior first. He's going for the heart first. Uh, the next thing is this, is Jesus is inviting his followers to participate in an alternate kingdom. He's inviting his followers to participate in an alternate, alternate kingdom. What I'm not doing today and in this three-week span is I'm not... Uh, talking about morality for society as a whole, okay? I'm not talking about morality for, this, for society as a whole. I'm not using this as a rule book to heap guilt and shame on anyone. I just want to answer the question for people who follow Jesus, who want to be formed in the way of Jesus, who have a hope and a vision for what Jesus wants to do in our world and where this world is ultimately heading, what are we to do with our bodies and our sexual desire? If Jesus is king and Lord over everything, including our bodies and our sexual desire, if, that, if all that's true, if you believe that, then what does that mean then for what we're, how we're supposed to engage in it and how, it's, how we're supposed to let it form us? So if you're not a Christian here today, then you, I want you to be here for this sermon series. You're in the right place. But just know, just be a fly on the wall and listen to a conversation that Christians are having together about if we really believe that Jesus is Lord and King over over all of the cosmos, especially my sec- even my sexual desires, then what are we as Christ followers supposed, supposed to do about that? How are we supposed to engage in that? That's the conversation that we're having. Number three is this, Jesus has grace for the struggle. Jesus has grace for the struggle. Um, in, a few, in like less than a month, we're gonna be talking about Christmas. Can you believe it? Christmas is here. In fact, has anybody started to listen to Christmas music already in their house? Put your hands down, you crazy people, come on. We've got a prayer team that meets after service. It's for you guys, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, we're going to be talking about Christmas, and we're going to talk about this radical thing that happened. Jesus took on flesh. Guys, listen, no other religion says this. No other religion dares say that the, that the all-powerful God is willing to come and be humble and take on flesh. And what we know about Jesus taking on flesh is we know that Jesus was tempted in every way that we're tempted. Even though, even though he was sinless, he was tempted in all the ways that we were. Jesus knows what it's like to be a human being. Jesus knows, listen to this, this is kind of wild. Jesus knows what it's like to have sexual desire. He knows. And so there's grace for the struggle. This is what our boy C.S. Lewis says because he says it so well. He says, there are people who want to keep our sexual instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. <laughs> that was happening way back then when he said this and it's still happening today. Uh, it's a strategy. Because, of course, I love this, a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. It's very true. <laughs> but, listen, God knows our situation he will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and the perseverance of our will to overcome them. There's grace for the struggle. And then number four, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Um, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you'll see is uh, Jesus, um, Jesus 
puts forth the highest sexual ethic that there is. And then in the very next breath, he's going out. He's letting people wash his feet. He's going to Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and says, I'm coming to your house. Um, Jesus puts the highest sexual ethic that there is. And then in the very next breath, he's offering an invitation to discipleship, an invitation to wholeness, invitation to restoration and grace. Um, So I'm assuming today that all of us are carrying some sexual baggage. I'm assuming that all of us here today have some, are carrying some sort of sexual regret that we're carrying, every single one of us. And, uh, you know, we've, we've either, it's either choices that we've made or we've been impacted by other people's decisions. It wasn't even, wasn't even our decision, but we've been impacted. The point is none of us are clean here. And the good news is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. We're leaning on the compassion and the grace of Jesus. It's actually incredible to realize that Jesus was fond of sexual failures and sexually confused and sexually broken people. Jesus was fond of them. He wanted to be with them. So, so you know, just breathe, okay? <laughs> Akuna matata. It's okay. Like, we're here, we're here, we're talking about this because it's just so good. And I'm looking at my time, and I'm like, not even, I'm like, that was the intro. <laughs> and so, oh, gosh. Oh, man. So I just, in this whole sermon series, I just want to say, I just want to tackle the question of sexual formation. It's who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Is what I'm doing with my sexual desire, is it forming me more in the way of Jesus, or is it deforming me away from those things? That's the question I want to tackle. That's what I want to do. Um, I got a blaze. So there's two overreactions that people have had, two strategies towards what we're supposed to do with our desire. The first strategy is the fear of desire. The fear of desire. The idea that this is so overwhelming, this, this sexual desire stuff, that it, if we let it out, it will burn the house down. So we need to, like, we need to bottle it up. We need to, like, put it away. We need to just keep it away from everything. It's this fear of desire. And unfortunately, the church has often fell into that. Um, and there's all sorts of examples about how the church has, has upheld a beautiful picture of, of sexual intimacy. But there's been a lot of, certainly a lot of different ways that the church has fallen into this idea that there's a physical part of you, there's a spiritual part of you, and the physical part of you is bad, and the spiritual part of you is good. So anything that brings pleasure and anything that's, you know, anything that's exciting, oh, we should be really suspicious of those things. And let's just be super boring, you know? Like that sort of, that, like that sort of idea. And unfortunately, that's crept into the church. I got a great quote here. Um, in the succeeding centuries, church authorities, this is the very beginning, um, issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, and on Sundays, in honor of the departed saints. Wednesdays sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and also feast days and days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. One pope assigned a painter called Daniel the Trouserer to clothe the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. Another rule that priests must be celibate. The the list escalated until, as Boswell estimates, that there were only 44 days a year that remained available for God-blessed sex within marriage. And that's a quote from John Tyson quoting Philip Yancey, quoting John Boswell. I dug deep for that one, okay? Um, The moral framework is this, or the framework is this. Moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. That's the script of fear-desire. It's moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. If you just have a moral standard and if you just try hard to fit that moral standard, then you'll be pure and then you'll be holy. Um, And guys, how has this worked for us? It hasn't worked. It never has. It's a complete and utter 
failure. And this perhaps is the critique of, of purity culture. So in the, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And so the way that a lot of people were talking about sex in church in those days were in an effort to try to help people understand that there were some potential, there were possibilities but pitfalls. It was put forward that like, hey, the ultimate thing that you need to do as a Christian is you need to stay pure before marriage. So virginity became the, like virginity before marriage became like the thing. And like if you could just do that, everything's going to be okay. And unfortunately, that was a standard that, people, that not everybody reached. And so people walked away feeling judged and they felt dirty and they felt like they weren't full participants in the kingdom of God. That was, that was a, that's a horrible thing. The other thing that it happened though was it overpromised and underdelivered because it promised a lot of people, man, if I just wait and don't have sex before marriage, then my sexual relationship in my marriage, no problems whatsoever, all easy, all the time. And so a lot of people entered marriage just feeling disillusioned because it's like, oh, wow, this, is, this isn't what I was taught. This isn't what I was promised. Um, so it can be said that moral standards plus willpower equals failure. Didn't work. Um, the, the other sort of over, you know, the, the, the overreaction was not fear desire, but it was follow your desire. Follow your desire. And the kind of like the formula for this one is desire plus consent Minus any sort of moral standards equals freedom. This was, this, this was what the sexual revolution pushed off into, the, into our world. Desire plus consent minus moral standards um, equals freedom. So uh, I found a quote by this gal named Carol Queen. She, uh, just a proponent of this sort of point of view, she says this. It's a simple yet radical affirmation. This is, comes from her term called sex positivity. She says, it's a, radical yet, uh, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. So in this framework, what Carol's trying to say is, you know, when it comes to sex, everybody, just calm down. Calm down. Sex isn't something that we should be uptight about. Sex and all of its expressions, as long as you have consent and as long as nobody gets hurt and as long as it makes you feel authentic and happy, then everything goes. You should just follow your desire and that will bring you happiness and freedom because in that worldview, it's just another appetite. It's just, sex is just another appetite. If you're thirsty, you drink some kombucha. If you're hungry, you, eat, you order a medium hot and jazzy yumble with brown rice with extra organic avocado, all right? And if you want to have sex with someone, and if you can find someone that can, will have sex with you, and if there's consent, then have sex. It's just another appetite. And if you can't find anyone to have sex with you, then look at porn and masturbate. And just do whatever, like whatever is going to like, you know, whatever is going to bring you joy and happiness, whatever desire you feel, just do those things and it will bring you wholeness and happiness. And so we're 50 years into this experiment of the sexual revolution. How is our culture doing? How is our culture doing is the big question. We're the most sex crazed society that's ever existed and people are more lonely, more disillusioned more confused, more frustrated, it has not delivered the sexual freedom and bliss that it promised. I found one article um, by this gal named Joanna who used to be a former editor of Cosmo and Marie Claire, and she did this article called What's Lust, What's Lust Got to Do With It in the New York Times, and here's what she says. She says, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. 
We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. And that's why Britain just appointed a loneliness minister. And I read that and I was like, Britain has a loneliness minister? And then I did some Googling and guess what? Britain has a loneliness minister. <laughs> Like, people are having more, like, just hookup sex than they ever had before, and, and they've realized, as so many of us have realized, that there is a problem that has not done what it, prom what it promises. It's actually making so much more loneliness. People becoming just so much more disillusioned. So, um, you know, moral standards plus just, you know, like, just your willpower, that, that equals failure. But... Desire plus consent minus moral standards that has not equaled freedom. That's equaled disillusionment and loneliness. And so it's no wonder, it's no wonder why Paul, when he's writing to people in Corinth who were, were people who were coming out of all sort of, you know, different sexual practices and things, but now they're following Jesus. He, listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says this, he says, there's more to sex, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. That sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. And since we want to become spiritually one with the master, listen, he says, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, what? Leaving us more lonely than ever. And so there's a kind of sexual desire that when we just decide that we're just going to follow it, it, we don't want to fear it, but then if we just follow it, we think it's going to promise us the intimacy that our hearts are really looking for, but in the end, it, it doesn't. It leaves, there's a way that, that using sex in certain ways will actually move us away from what we actually want and will actually move us away from what God ultimately wants. And it's funny how the apostles, and we're not, you know, we can't look at those passages today. The apostles all throughout the New Testament are writing to these churches who are, who are living in cities where, you know, the, the apostles are well aware of all the different sexual stuff that those people have been doing and the different ways that they've been, you know, using their sexual desire in their bodies. But over and over again, here's what Paul and Peter and the other, the other apostles, here's what they say. They keep, they keep saying this. They keep saying, you know what? Um, you know, there was, uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a way that you handled that before you were a follower of Jesus, but we're out of time for that now. Now there's a new vision. There's a new approach. So we're going to leave that stuff behind because Jesus has given us a new way to handle our sexual desires and, our, to, and to view our bodies. And so um, to, um, to close, I'm actually doing really good, to close for today, um, in steps Jesus, in steps Jesus, with a, with a new vision, with a new vision for what we're supposed to do with our physical bodies and what we're supposed to do with our sexual desires. Jesus's vision is not fear, desire. And his vision is not just follow your desire. That is not Jesus's vision. Jesus's vision is this, give me your desire. Submit your desire to me. Don't fear it. And don't just blindly follow it. Those will lead you to places that, that will deform you. It will, it, will, it, will, it, will tr it will move you away from me. Here's what I want you to do. Jesus would, would say to all of us, to every single one of us, he says, give me your desire. Submit your desire to me. And he's offering discipleship. He's offering restoration. He's offering us a new framework for sexual formation. So in Jesus' motto, submit your desire, here's the equation. You ready? His equation is vision plus power 
plus practices equal restoration. A vision for what our bodies are in sexual intimacy, intimacy and sexual desire is all about. A power, not just our willpower, but a new power at the center of our lives, plus community, plus practices around us, that those things will lead to restoration. So I want to end by asking uh, prayer team, you guys can come on up. Um, uh, band, you guys can come on up. And just as I kind of land the plane here, uh, I want to end with where I started. Um, by the way, as they're coming up, so um, how many questions have I answered for all of you? I've answered all, all of them, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. No, that's why you have to come back next week because the vision plus power plus practices, all that, the, like I'm going to handle especially the first two next week, okay? Next week, I'm going to do my best to just put forward the, the, uh, the most compelling understanding of the Christian vision for what our bodies are for, what sexual desire is all about, and what we get to use it for if we want to be formed into the, into the image of Jesus and be participants of his kingdom. Um, but as we close, I just wanted to say uh, where we left off is that Jesus is going for the heart on this, guys. He's not starting with your behavior on this, okay? And that's not where I want to start either. I want to start with the heart on this. That's an upstream issue. And if we can get this, if we can understand his vision, then it will have the ability. You know, we used to sing this song in church called From the Inside Out. That we, we're transformed from the inside out, not just from, not from outside in. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus is going for the heart. He's inviting us into an alternate kingdom with a new vision for our sexual desire and sexual formation. He has grace for the struggle. He has grace for the struggle, and he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of all of us, no matter where we are today. That's good, good news, okay? So um, I'm gonna pray for us. And I'm just going to ask that just at the beginning of this conversation that, that we're having, that it would just lead just really perfectly into the next week. I want to send you off just by asking yourself this question. It's just, a, it's just a basic formation question. Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Who am I becoming by the way that I, I view my body, the way that I view sexual desire? What is that? Where, where, how is that helping me? Where, how is that forming me? That's the question I want, just want you to ask. I want you to wrestle with it. It's good to wrestle. And it's good to talk. It's good to have discussion. That's what we want. We don't, you know, there's no, there's no bad questions. I mean, we just want to have dialogue about all that stuff. Um, but the good news is that Jesus is with us every step of the way. He took on flesh. He has grace for us. He wants the heart first. Let's let him in.